0: Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we take a look at the American nonprofits supporting Israeli settler expansion in the occupied territories. We speak with journalist Alex Kane. Later in the program, we speak with the British Palestinian filmmaker Farah Nabulsi about her award-winning film, The Present. Stay with us. Jewish-only settlements continue a violation of international law and international humanitarian law, particularly the Fourth Geneva Convention. But they have remained a stable policy of consecutive Israeli right-wing and left-wing governments. Even with the upheaval inside Israeli politics the Israeli cabinet still had the time to greenlight the construction of over 500 new settlement units in Bethlehem region in May and as the protests and legal challenges to forced expulsion of Palestinian families continue in East Jerusalem. We take a look at the American nonprofits supporting Israeli settler expansion in the occupied territories. Mira Nabolsi spoke with journalist Alex Kane. He is a contributing writer for Jewish Currents and Plus 972 magazine. His work has also appeared in The Intercept, Vice, In These Times, Al Jazeera, and more.
1: In May, as tensions in Jerusalem and Gaza were rising, you wrote about U.S. nonprofits supporting settler activity in Jerusalem. Uh, And one central Israeli settler organization you talk about in The Intercept article is the Israel Land Fund or the ILF. What can you tell us about them?
2: So the Israel Land Fund is a... Israeli organization run by a man named Arya King, who is a deputy mayor in Jerusalem. And Arya King has been one of the main instigators of tensions in Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood targeted by Israeli settlers. And he has repeatedly gone to the neighborhood to lead far-right Israeli activists to harass Palestinians who live there as part of a larger effort to make lives for Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah much more difficult. In general, Arya King is also a significant figure in the broader Israeli settler movement, and he focuses particularly on Jerusalem. His organization buys up plots of land around Jerusalem in occupied East Jerusalem to sell to. Israeli Jews or, or Jews from elsewhere, including the United States, to buy up land. And so they can bring more Jews to occupied East Jerusalem to be settlers as a way to boost what is the Israeli settler movement's main goal, which is essentially fragmenting Palestinian communities in East Jerusalem to weaken them in order to entrench Israeli Jewish demographic dominance over Jerusalem. And that is really the core goal of an organization like the Israel Land Fund. And the Israel Land Fund, of course, doesn't just do this by itself. They get a lot of help from American donors who send money to nonprofit organizations in the United States, and then funnel that money to the Israel Land Fund.
1: And yeah, my second question was gonna be about the U.S. nonprofit that funds I.L.F., which you wrote about, the Central Fund of Israel. Can you explain how this organization works?
2: So the Central Fund of Israel actually runs out of a textiles firm in Manhattan run by a guy named Jay Marcus. And they are the main settler organization that exists in the United States. They are one of dozens, I should say, but they are basically the most popular fund and they take millions of dollars in donations from Americans, largely American Jews who use Central Fund of Israel as a way to contribute to the Israeli settler movement. And so so basically this is sort of how it works. The Central Fund of Israel solicits donations. Individual Americans or family foundations in the United States send money to the Central Fund of Israel in order to get a tax write-off. You now, when Americans do their taxes, they can take deductions and one of the ways that the government subsidizes nonprofits is that the money that you donate to a nonprofit is tax deductible so When Americans give money to the Central Fund of Israel, it's actually a tax-deductible donation, even though the Central Fund of Israel is funding activities that are in clear, brazen violation of international law and contribute to a lot of displacement of Palestinians uh, and harassment of Palestinians who are just trying to live on their land in occupied East Jerusalem and, and the West Bank. And then the Central Fund of Israel distributes that money to dozens, if not more, of Israeli settler organizations, ranging from the Israel Land Fund to settlers in Hebron, some of the most sort of violent settlers in Hebron, to they came under fire for funding a legal organization that provided legal services to Israeli Jewish extremists who were on trial for violent acts targeting Palestinians. And so this is an organization that it claims to, you know, do nothing illegal or it claims to, it tries to hold itself sort of apart from the apartheid reality. But the truth of the matter is that they are a key part of what is An apartheid reality in Israel-Palestine. They are helping to build up Israeli settler infrastructure and funding the activities of Israeli settlers who are continually building on occupied Palestinian land as part of a push to kill any chance for Palestinian self-determination, to harm Palestinian rights, and of course to consolidate Israeli apartheid and Israeli dominance over Palestinians. Mm
1: -hmm. I want to read out this line from the website of the Israel Land Fund. They say, house by house, lot by lot, the Israel Land Fund is ensuring the land of Israel stays in the hands of the Jewish people forever. You too can take part in this great endeavor. So on their website, you can go to a drop-down menu, choose a city essentially anywhere inside Israel or in Jerusalem or even what they call today in Samaria. That's essentially the West Bank. You choose a price range and then the type of property you want and you get different options that a Jewish person can buy from anywhere in the world. Did you get the chance look into that I was obviously curious what happens next and how do they determine that the inquiry is coming from someone who is actually Jewish
2: I don't know the exact answer to to that but what i will say is this gets into the larger issue of israel privileging jews and allowing jews around the world easy access to citizenship you compare that to how palestinians who have roots in the land going back hundreds of years or thousands of years do not get that same right you know palestinian refugees are barred from from the right to return so what the israel land fund is doing is really appealing to jews around the world and basically saying that you too can become part of the Jewish state. I'm not entirely sure of the legal rules in Israel, so whether you have to be a citizen or or not. I, I don't believe you have to be a, a citizen of Israel to buy land in Jerusalem because I know that American Jews have bought land in Israel without becoming Israeli citizens like Irving Moskowitz and Sheldon Adelson, although his wife Miriam... Is an Israeli citizen. But I think it it just gets to, speaks to the larger issue of both Israel and Israeli settlers appealing to Jews around the world to take advantage of the privilege that they access just by virtue of being Jewish and the sort of Unequal reality that that exposes because Palestinians cannot do the same thing because Mm -hmm. simply because they're not Jewish
1: And a few years ago, you've also investigated another US nonprofit the one Israel fund similar name How easy was it to find the money trail or the support between these American organizations and the settler organizations or settlement communities?
2: The the investigations I've done are in many cases, reliant on investigating 990s, so every nonprofit and family foundations in the United States has to file a, a 990, uh, which is a, a tax document that they file with the IRS to detail their activities every year. And so the IRS ensures that what they're doing is legitimate under U.S. tax law. What I did was comb through you know dozens of these. 990s, most of them from family foundations and again, most of them are from the segment of the American Jewish community, many of them in the sort of orthodox wing of the Jewish community, although not exclusively, who use their family foundations to donate to settler nonprofits in the United States who then send that money to to Israel, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. And so some of this is pretty out in the open. You go to a family foundation and you can scroll down and see if the amount of money that they gave to say the Central Fund of Israel. Some of it is not transparent though. So if you, like the 990s of the Central Fund of Israel, they don't detail where their money is going. So you have to go into the Israeli tax documents to get that information. So with the Israel Land Fund in particular, the Central Fund of Israel doesn't say on their American documents that they're funding the Israel Land Fund. So I had to go into the Israeli tax document website and look up where their budget is coming from. And it is listed in the Israeli documents. So actually the Israeli documents are slightly more transparent than the American ones. Um, But it's really based, the the investigation is based around both reading the, the tax documents in Israel and the United States. Uh, and also, of course, talking to people that are sort of experts um, on this topic.
1: I know you said some of this money is not very transparent, but do we have a general idea about what is this money used for
2: typically? It varies based on the organization and then some organizations donate to like such a wide variety of causes, but I I can maybe give some examples. In the case of the One Israel Fund, which is a nonprofit based in a New York suburb in Long Island, a lot of their money goes to sort of buildings in in West Bank and East Jerusalem settlements, like hospitals, religious schools, playgrounds, senior centers. And when you think about it, if you didn't know anything about the situation, you might think that this seems normal. This is good. Hospitals should get money. Religious schools should get money, playgrounds. But the devil is in the details. Of course, this money is going to settler infrastructure, which contributes to the fortification of the Israeli settlement project, meaning that you know after 1967, when Israel began building settlements, those settlements were built on stolen Palestinian land, land that Israel had conquered from uh, Palestinians and then building Jewish only communities on top of their former villages. So this is where that money is going. In the case of when you're building, you know, playgrounds and religious schools and and senior centers and hospitals on Palestinian land in the West Bank. And it also just in general is just another brick in the wall of settler infrastructure. And that settler infrastructure, of course, includes separate roads that allow settlers to commute to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and then go back to West Bank settlement. But those roads are off limits to Palestinians, and they often cross through Palestinian lands, making you know Palestinian commutes that much more difficult. Some of the more controversial things that some of these settler nonprofits fund are what they would term as you know security assistance, armored vests, security vehicles, guard training, surveillance equipment. Uh, the one Israel fund in particular funds what are called uh, ravshatzim, which is a Hebrew word an acronym, which which means coordinator of security with the army. And that's a civilian employed by the settlement who are armed and specially trained by the Israeli military. And Palestinian and human rights groups have documented harassment from these guards that are funded by the One Israel Fund. And also other organizations have funded guard dogs, bulletproof vests, rifle scopes, and vehicles to secure Israeli settlements that are deep in the occupied West Bank. And again, this is just a fueling of Israeli apartheid in which Israeli settlers get all of the benefits of being Israeli citizens while their Palestinian neighbors live under military law and are severely restricted in how they can move and what they can do and the, the opinions and protests that they can voice.
1: I wanted us to go back to what's going on in Jerusalem right now and specifically in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. There are two organizations that are believed to be directly involved in the attempts to forcefully evict families in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah and Those two organizations are called Ataret Kohanim and Nahalat Shimon, if I'm pronouncing them correctly. Were you able to identify any U.S. ties to those two organizations?
2: Uh, Yes. So Nahalat Shimon is very difficult to unpack who exactly is behind them. It's still unclear. The Forward, the American Jewish newspaper, recently did an investigation of who is behind Nahalat Shimon and they didn't necessarily identify the players that are the central figures because i think they're, they're still sort of hidden but they did identify some for instance one there's a lawyer that is linked to the American company that is registered as being part of the ownership of Nahalat Shimon and that lawyer is Seymour Braun he's a, a lawyer based in New York and they manage, they're sort of linked to a figure who manages properties in the West Bank and Jerusalem. That's kind of all we know at the moment about Nahalat Shimon. We're not entirely sure of their funding or who exactly is is behind them. The at- Atare Kohanim is more easy to figure out in terms of their American connections. Atari Kohanim is also not completely transparent. Their organization is sort of linked to a number of shell companies around the world. But what we do know is that Atare Kohanim is backed by an American group called American Friends of Atare Kohanim, which gives tax-deductible donations to the settler group. In 2017, the American group gave its settler counterparts over $525,000. And in Atare Kohanim is uh, specifically trying to forcibly displace 87 Palestinians from their homes in a neighborhood in Silwan, which is in East Jerusalem called, and the sub-neighborhood is Batan El Hawa, And it's part of, again, similar to Sheikh Jarrah, part of a push to what settler leaders call like putting layers of Jews in East Jerusalem, which would make it incredibly difficult for any Israeli government to withdraw from in the case of a deal with Palestinians, which would give Palestinians independence and self-determination in the form of a state. So the Israeli settler project is trying to make that impossible and settle in East Jerusalem. There's another organization called Friends of Ir David, and they too are also funding efforts in another neighborhood in Silwan, in Al-Bustan, where 88 Palestinian homes are facing demolition orders to make way for archaeological attractions that are meant to showcase the ancient Jewish link to the area. Of course, the victims of that are Palestinians who are facing forced displacement and homelessness at the hands of Israeli settlers and their American donors who back them.
1: So let's take a step back and talk about the larger picture here. Obviously, there are many, many organizations in the U.S. raising funds for settlement, communities, you know, different settlement activities. The Israeli newspaper, Howards conducted an investigation a few years ago in which they identified about 50 American nonprofits raising literally hundreds of millions of dollars yearly to settler communities and activities. But settlements remain illegal under international law. How is this still legal in America? What loopholes do these U.S. nonprofits use?
2: I would first say that there's no specific prohibition in the US legal code that says that Americans cannot donate money to Israeli settlements or cannot donate money to anything that violates international law. So in general, that's the first thing to understand. There's no specific prohibition in the US tax code or the legal code that says that. If Congress wanted to do that, which they They don't at the moment, but say in a theoretical world, which they did, it's possible that that would be banned if congressional officials said no longer can American nonprofits raise money for things that contribute to violations of international law or or human rights. That said... There have been efforts and there have been lawsuits claiming violations of U.S. law that these nonprofits are engaging in, but these lawsuits have not gone anywhere. Courts have declined to intervene because they see it as a executive branch issue, that is the executive branch of the United States that deals with foreign policy. Because U.S.-Israel relations and U.S. policies on settlements are foreign policy, the judicial system did not want to get involved because they said that, under the Constitution, that's the, that's the provenance of the executive branch. Lawyers have tried to use this provision in the tax code that prohibits nonprofits from engaging in explicit political activity, but the courts have not agreed with these lawyers' interpretations of, of what that means. I should say that lawyers in the United States continue to press for more scrutiny of these nonprofits and pushing the idea that Americans through charities shouldn't be able to support or aid or abet any activities that are illegal under international law. I interviewed Diala Shamas, a staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And she told me that she thinks that, you know, members of Congress should call on the State Department and the IRS to investigate these groups and not grant them the privilege of tax-deductible status. But that is a, a long-shot demand, and it's pretty unclear what would happen if the State Department looked at this, or or the IRS looked at this, I think the solution may have to come from Congress, but there are really only a few members of Congress that are even interested in scrutinizing these nonprofits. As far as I know, no members of Congress have really taken on this issue as a key issue of what they should be looking into. I mean, I think members of Congress like Rashid Tlaib and, and Ilhan Omar are certainly opposed to what the nonprofits are doing, but it hasn't been a central part of their advocacy, and that's in part Probably, I'm guessing, because of the sort of difficult legal battle that would await any attempt to outlaw nonprofits. I think it would probably touch on free speech law, whether the U.S. can actually squelch the ability of an organization to get nonprofit status because they're funding violations of international law but uh, again i mean i think you know at the very least members of congress should hold hearings on these organizations to to really bring more attention to the fact that there are hundreds of organizations in the united states that are funding really abhorrent policies that are fueling apartheid in Israel-Palestine.
1: And specifically on the bit that U.S. administrations have historically, perhaps with the exception of Trump's administration, rejected settlement activity, at least in the West Bank, shouldn't that translate to making the support for settlement activity illegal? Or do you see any benefit from that position at least? Uh, Can that be leveraged maybe in a lawsuit or some sort of a challenge?
2: Yeah, it has been leveraged in lawsuits. In a number of the lawsuits that have been filed against the settler nonprofits, they have cited U.S. policy against settlements. But again, the lawsuits in general have not really gotten very far because of the judicial branch's historic deference to the executive branch on foreign policy. So that gives the ball to the executive branch who could scrutinize these nonprofits even more if they had the political will and desire to to do so. They could direct the IRS to investigate whether these nonprofits are acting in violation of US law and see what that type of scrutiny would unearth. Part of the problem, I guess, is that there has been a ping-ponging on U.S. views on Israeli settlements, right? You're right that since every president since Israel began building West Bank settlements has opposed Israeli settlements from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton to even George W. Bush. But when the Trump administration got in power, they reversed all of those U.S. policies. And the State Department rescinded a memo that declared that the U.S considers Israeli settlements to be violations of international law, that memo actually has not been reinforced by the Biden administration. So Pompeo reversed decades of U.S. policy and Biden administration has not gone back and said, actually, that policy remains State Department policy. So that is part of the issue that Trump administration shifted U.S. policy far to the right. And the Biden administration has not yet taken steps to reverse that.
1: And building on that, also the issue of the embassy, Biden decided not to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv. So it stays in Jerusalem as of now. Do you feel like that perhaps also offers kind of a cover, especially for the activities that we're seeing right now in Jerusalem?
2: The Biden administration is trying to have it both ways. They don't have the political will to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv because it would really open up a huge political fight, not only with Republicans, but also within members of their own party, Democrats who are supporters of the status quo in Israel-Palestine. And so they are saying that we're not going to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv, but we also believe that Jerusalem is still subject to negotiation. The problem, of course, is that the Trump administration's move arguably put an American stamp of approval on Israeli control over all of Jerusalem. So that's really the issue. And so now the U.S. policy seemingly is that Israel's control and annexation of Jerusalem is, is okay and the United States is not gonna do anything to try to curb. Israel's aggressive annexationist policies in Jerusalem, which, of course, leads to more displacement of Palestinians and more Israeli settlers moving into East Jerusalem.
1: I'm curious, Alice, were you able to find any links to evangelical organizations in your research?
2: Yes. Evangelicals are also a key part of the infrastructure that powers settlers. For instance, Hayovel is a Christian evangelical organization based in, I believe, Tennessee. and they're a nonprofit as well. What they do is they send American volunteers, mostly Christian evangelicals, to work in wineries and in West Bank settlements. So they're sending Christian evangelicals to the West Bank to help out the settler economy in the West Bank. And of course that settler economy is built on theft and it's built on stolen land and it's built on stealing the resources of Palestinians who have lived there for generations. And now the settlers are there, which have been built in since 1967 and are profiting from that land. So, you know, that's one example of how Christian evangelicals are implicated in this. There are many other Christian evangelical groups that also have sent money, like Christian Friends of Israeli Communities is another big one. I think perhaps the biggest Christian evangelical organization that raises money for Israeli settlements. And again, the same principle applies to the American Jewish nonprofits. They get tax deductible donations and they send that money to fortify the West Bank settlement project.
1: And you were starting to talk about some of the previous challenges that we've seen to uh, settler organizations or, you know, American organization raising funds for Israeli settler organizations. But are you aware of anything right now that's going on, whether legal, political challenges to the work, at least of the U.S. nonprofits?
2: Yes, there is a an ongoing case right now called Al-Tamimi versus Adelson. And that is a group of Palestinian villagers and Palestinian Americans who are alleging that Israeli and U.S. tax exempt organizations uh, are involved in genocide, land theft and trespassing in occupied Palestine. Some of the defendants include Sheldon Adelson, who died earlier this year, but you know was one of the wealthiest Americans and is known for supporting Israeli settlements in the West Bank. And also named at the complaint is the American Friends of Bet El Yeshiva Center, which is um, a nonprofit group that was formerly headed by Trump's U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. It also got money from Jared Kushner, who is Trump's son-in-law. The case in 2017, a judge said that this is, again, a matter that is outside of the court's purview, but the plaintiffs appealed it and the court ruled that not all of the issues were outside of the court's jurisdiction and so they are going to determine and sort of adjudicate the claims around whether sort of genocide, which is a, a strong term, but is, has been alleged by the defendants is a valid one for the courts to rule on. And so the, the, this case is ongoing. I'm not entirely sure when another ruling will come down. These cases typically take years, but it has brought some more attention to the activities of the nonprofits that are funding settlements in the West Bank.
1: And finally, before we close, I wanted to get any final thoughts or remarks on this issue from you. But I wanted to also ask, do you feel like the fact that these nonprofits exist legally and are able to function and continue to fundraise with very little challenge helps normalize settlement activities or even the forced evictions that we are seeing, for example, in Jerusalem, whether that's in the Zionist Jewish community in the U.S. or just more broadly in the
2: U.S.? I don't know if it helps normalize it, but it certainly contributes to a lot of suffering. I mean, I think the more awareness and the more that more that Palestinian rights and that becomes part of the larger progressive agenda, the more attention will be put on Israeli settlements and their impact on Palestinian life in Jerusalem and the West Bank. So I'm not sure if if the nonprofits themselves can actually normalize the presence of settlements. I mean, settlements, you know, the Palestinian rights community has done a good job at highlighting why settlements should not be seen as normal and why they should be seen as a process of colonization that is slowly ripping Palestinians away from their land and and making their lives very, very difficult. That said, the nonprofits do continue to exist and they do continue to contribute to a lot of suffering in the West Bank and Jerusalem. And so journalists and activists should continue to shine the light on them, to continue hammering this point home that American nonprofits in the United States that are funding activities that fuel land theft of Palestinians and harassment of them. And that's something that absolutely has to be challenged and scrutinized.
0: Alex Kane is a contributing writer for Jewish Currents and Plus 972 magazine. His work has also appeared in The Intercept, Vice, In These Times, Al Jazeera, and more. He spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. nominated film, The Present, follows Youssef and his young daughter, Yasmin, as they set out from their home to buy an anniversary gift. But the Israeli checkpoint turns this ordinary task to a long, exhausting and humiliating experience for the pair, as they are forced to face the heavily armed soldiers at the checkpoint, navigate segregated roads and roadblocks. I spoke with the director of The Present, Farah Nabulsi, about her film, but I first asked her about an op-ed she wrote in The Hollywood Reporter about the recent brutal war on Gaza and the mobilization against the Israeli occupation across historic Palestine.
3: It's interesting. So having come back recently from Los Angeles, attending the Oscars, and uh, my main actor from the present, Saleh Bakri, was with us there. And we engaged in a conversation where we were both saying how Beautiful, it would be. It's so needed for this kind of unity that no matter how much they've tried to split us up, if only, if only, from the West Bank to Gaza to 48 Palestinians in the refugee camps to across the world, Palestinians could unite beyond impotent leadership and all of that. And then the crazy part was we've come back and and this is happening and so the first person i sent a message to was to saleh and i said is our dream happening is it and he was on the ground and with Friends and people that I know, and he knows, of course, who are actors and actresses and film people and other artists. And, you know, in this case, actually, we were speaking just after Mesa Abdelhadi had been shot, the actress, in the leg. He was just leaving hospital seeing her. But it's a beautiful thing to see that. We'll never know what or why or what was the ingredient or the tipping point of that. But somehow, and I'd like to put it down to the idea of how much can Palestinians take, really, wherever they are in terms of what's going on. But of course, mostly so on the ground. And it's powerful that there seems to be a unity and a, an energy and you know this comes back to what we were kind of briefly discussing before we sort of started the interview with this idea of of the next generation and the youth taking control being more defiant and i think this is an incredible thing and i think this is not something we have seen for a very very long time
0: in the open you write while our families and friends send us updates Of the latest atrocity on the ground, headlines and news bulletins mislead and confuse, colonialism becomes a conflict, ongoing ethnic cleansing, evictions, attack on civilians, a clash. Though nothing new, this media fog where both side discourse erases the difference between occupier and occupied and a military behemoth versus a fragmented civilian population. But at the same time, we have seen Farah, a thriving, as you said, an active participation of Palestinians in Palestine and in diaspora, especially young people, in shifting the narrative.
3: I think we are in a zeitgeist where we do have a world that is crying out for an end of discrimination and racism. And, and I think when we saw what happened with the Black Lives Matter movement not too long ago, and there is that intersectionality and this is this recognition that freedom should be for everyone. This idea of let's rid the world of discrimination, racism, well, that should be for everyone, you know. So we definitely are in just a different time. But I've always said that since time immemorial, all colonial enterprises and settler colonialism and Zionist settler colonialism is no, no different. They work very hard to ensure that the indigenous population they are oppressing, that they are colonizing, are first dehumanized and branded as barbarians and then eventually their very existence is denied. And they do that, of course, for internal and external consumption so that people of goodwill will not feel with that population and then any and all atrocities can be carried out against them with no recourse. And this has definitely been carried out systematically and on an ongoing basis for Palestinians. So if we know that, then we certainly know that that dehumanization must and should be reversed, and we also know that ultimately the the world community do not actually know that much about what's going on on the ground in Palestine. So if we take the example of this film, The Present, that recently you know, won a BAFTA, went to the Oscars and seems to have resonated with the world, is being distributed on Netflix worldwide, and all the media that that film got, all the mainstream media, that that film got and the conversations I had on mainstream media, whether it was CNN, MSNBC, Sky News, the New York Times, there was a a great list of that. What that told me is that even though it's such a simple story, but it does address this basic human right of freedom of movement. And it is the PG version of what takes place at these checkpoints, Mm. or what has taken place at these checkpoints, that there is an interest and a willingness to engage and understand. And that such a simple thing in that it's not simple, it's terrible, it's, it's occupation, it's apartheid, it's separate road systems, all that. But what I mean is just one element of this oppression that, that was revealed via this checkpoint in that sense had such an impact on people. So that tells you that when you engage, when you do take the time to present and offer and, and the cracks are there, Where mainstream media start to see it, individuals start to see it through the power, by the way, initially of social media, because that forces the hand of mainstream media sometimes, then the cracks get bigger and the conversations get more informed and get bigger. And, you know, so I think that there's in some ways a snowball effect but you have to push through the cracks, which means exactly what has been taking place where we are presenting our own narrative. You know, We're taking control of our narrative and we are questioning and correcting incorrect narrative misrepresentations, deliberate or non-deliberate, either way, and terminologies. And we're doing it much more boldly and unapologetically And I think more intelligently, more creatively, and I think maybe that kind of explains a little as to why this seems to have pushed through the
0: cracks, if you like, more than in the past. Let's talk about your wonderful film, The Present. The title of your short film gives the impression that we are going to watch a lighthearted film. But it's far from it. The present tells the story of a laborer named Yusuf, played by the acclaimed Palestinian actor Saleh Bakri, who sets out one day with his young daughter, Yasmin, to get an anniversary gift for his wife. This normal everyday chore becomes a humiliating and exhausting practice for Yusuf and his young daughter because of the checkpoint that they have to cross to get to a nearby store and they're trying to buy a refrigerator. Where did the idea for the present come from
3: it's a fiction film based on a, on a cruel reality that exists on the ground today in Palestine and the inspiration for this film came from a number of sources firstly it's it's very much based on my own experience at these Israeli checkpoints all over the West Bank and witnessing Palestinians at these checkpoints and the seed specifically for the story was sown as I stood very near a checkpoint with a young man who I've become friends with over the years who lives about 100 meters from a checkpoint and we had just come through the checkpoint and we were standing looking at this monstrosity which is very similar to the one in the film it has a a turnstile and a metal detector which not all checkpoints have but this one did and I basically said to him what if you needed to bring a couch home Mm -hmm. and he just looked at me like you know sort of naive that Farah, it doesn't fit, it doesn't go. And of course, the idea is, you know, you're supposed to ask for permission, but these checkpoints are not here to make Palestinian lives easy. So ultimately, permits are not exactly like they lining up to get them get them for you and, and sort them out for you and all of that. And of course, then the conversation became even more convoluted. I was like, what if you needed a hammer to fix some things at home? That fits, you know. He said, are you crazy? They'll think you have a weapon. And, it, you know, so it just became so convoluted. And that stuck with me. I didn't write this sort of story till about the actual story part till about a year, year and a half later. But that stuck with me. How absurd. And this young man, his situation is far more harsh than what I represent in the film. He has to go through a checkpoint sometimes four or five times, six times a day, no matter what he wants to do, where he wants to go, who he wants to see, what he wants to get. It just it blew my mind. So that's where the seed of the story was sown. And then after that, I started to write the script. I wrote my first draft, and then I started to write with uh, Hinchofani, a filmmaker. We co-wrote the rest of the script. And it just developed from there. But on the very basic premise, man goes, comes back, and without ruining it for anyone, it all yes. happens.
0: In the second scene of the film, we see a sea of men trying mm-hmm. to walk through a narrow corridor to cross the checkpoint. You filmed this scene on location. It's at the infamous Checkpoint 300, which connects Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Can you talk about the process, how you managed to do that, what it meant for you to be able To capture thousands of men in a claustrophobic space, pushing Mm -hmm. to get through, hoping to get through this uh, checkpoint.
3: So like you mentioned, Checkpoint 300 is a very infamous checkpoint in Bethlehem. It leads into East Jerusalem. And, you know, one could say that that one scene of the film is documentary because Mm. that's a real checkpoint versus the other checkpoint in the film that is the main checkpoint throughout the rest of the film. And interestingly enough, even though there's over a hundred Israeli checkpoints all over the West Bank and another hundred or so flying checkpoints that can appear anytime, anywhere, there is a couple of dozen that, are crossing over and I, I kind of say that in exclamation marks and semicolons, in the sense that Israel has never defined its borders so crossing over let's say it but um, and this checkpoint is one of them and I felt like first of all it was really important to, to film this checkpoint I've been in this checkpoint myself previously and it is very inhumane I kind of liken it to sort of the worst kind of battery farm for cattle. And there was no way I could sort of replicate that authentically. And I certainly didn't have the budget to attempt to do that. So everybody in that scene are real Palestinians going to work, except for our protagonist, the actor, Saleh Bakri. And, you know, it was guerrilla style. I mean, the idea being that we went there 2.33 in the morning as the people started piling and piling and piling up. Uh, We shot till around seven in the morning and we had Two cameramen, no lighting. We wanted to remain undetected as much as possible. We knew how far we could go. Right at the end of that narrow tunnel, if you like, there's a lot more that goes on past that. So you go into an area where there is the military and it's very industrial. And so we knew where to film to stay away from that line of vision. And interesting enough, though, for me, that was probably the most rewarding scene of all in terms of filming. I think that reality adds that authenticity to this otherwise fiction film, if you like. And also who is Yusuf? Who is the protagonist? Who is this man who we're gonna watch for the rest of this film? I could have left that scene out And you'd still have a very clear story. But I think it was really important to understand the backstory of who this man is Mm -hmm. and what it is he goes through every day and how exhausting it is, how humiliating it is. Because he is one man, of course, that we've zoomed into in this film, but he's reflective of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are just trying to earn a living and put food on the table in a place that has been economically strangled for so long. And I thought that just that was very important to present.
0: There was an article in Al Jazeera a couple of years ago about Checkpoint 300 and it says thousands of Palestinians from the Southern Occupied West Bank must cross this barrier to work in Occupied East Jerusalem. It can take up to three hours to cross the checkpoint during the rush hour. When traffic is less during the day, the journey just takes a few minutes. And also the scene, you show this chaotic space with Palestinians squeezing together inside a single lane, pulling themselves up on the Mm -hmm. surrounding steel bars, climbing over and dangling among the crowd. And Yusuf is just standing there, Watching all this with horror.
3: Look, I think ultimately the Palestinians that go through this, in some ways, of course, you get used to it. But the question is, how do you ever really get used to Mm. that? I mean, how do you, you know? I think for Saleh anyway, as an individual, it was very tough for him to film that scene. I mean, he says so. He'd been through many checkpoints in his life, but never, never this kind of industrial one at this time of day as other laborers, if you get my meaning. So he, yeah. he'd never actually been through that experience himself personally. So it was pretty traumatic for him. And he felt that many ways he was getting in the way, but really what was the kind of philosophical conversation of like, how does a human being, how does a man mm-hmm. who goes through that for hours every day, and then of course goes to work for hours, comes back extremely late. How does he have the will or the energy or the attitude mm-hmm. to play with his children, to hug his wife, to live beyond that. People think even that all those thousands of people at that checkpoint live nearby. No, some of them, some of them are arriving on buses that were about an hour, an hour and a half drive away. Can you imagine? So you get on a bus, you go for about an hour, an hour and a half, you get to this checkpoint and then you go into that battery farm for the next hour, two hours, three hours. So, you know, the assumption that somehow all the people there are, are very nearby, no, many, many of them do not live nearby. And that's even more wild. And that's why at the beginning of the film, you see Yusuf uh, lying on a cardboard box. And that's because I, I, I remember seeing Palestinians on these cardboard boxes and asking, what is that all about? only to discover that, of course, some Palestinians try to get there earlier to avoid the crowds as much as later. And so they get there and they take a nap. They're sleeping on the ground between midnight and 2 a.m., for example. And says, this is insane. It's insane. How did you find Yasmin? So Maryam Ken, she, yes, incredible. She, I have a theory that when you set out to, to do something that is well-intentioned and somehow serves the universe in, in a positive way, the universe answers you back. And I basically was at a friend's house and I said to her, oh, I've cast Saleh Bakri as as Yusuf in my film. And now all I need to do is find myself an eight-year-old Palestinian girl who lives in Palestine, speaks great Arabic, can act. Well, I'd like her to look like the father in the film versus the mother. So ideally even the blue eyes and and, and, and. And she says to me, what about my niece? And she shows me a picture of Maryam Kanj and my jaw dropped and I went, wow, she not only has those beautiful expressive eyes that look exactly like Saleh Beki, but she looks like him, her jaw. She actually looks more like Saleh Bekli than she does her own father. So first of all, I'm like, okay, can she act? She says, I don't know, but she's been on film sets because her father's a production designer. And she tells me his name, which is Nal Kenj. And I, I said, wait, that name sounds so familiar. So I look at my phone just to check a few messages back between myself and the producer. And it's the production manager that we've hired. And it was like, oh, my God. And so, mm. so it all came together. I go to Palestine. I'm doing auditions. I go to meet her. I fall in love with her immediately. She's a very emotionally intelligent girl. She's very expressive, she's very confident on set with adults, with strangers. And interestingly enough, Saleh knew her as a baby in the sense that he's friends with her father. But he, he didn't know her well, well, in the sense that he doesn't see her often. But it became almost like a family affair.
0: You know, she doesn't talk much in the film, but and she's observing and watching the frustration and the humiliation her father is exposed to
3: she's observing it and she is also humiliated we forget that that is true it's double for
0: a child so what does this character represent yusuf is wearing this timepiece this watch that his father gave him he turns to the israeli soldier and says he gives the watch but he says not her Talk about this character and what she represented for you.
3: Ultimately, she is Yasmin. She re- represents in so many ways all the children, all the youth, mm-hmm. all the, you know, all Palestinian children, ultimately, as he represents all Palestinian, you know, men in that sense. Mm-hmm. But she is Yasmin. She is the daughter of this man. When he says, not her, they're putting him in a, in a cage. And even though this checkpoint in itself is oppressive and humiliating to them both simultaneously. And even those in the West Bank are in a cage, an an even bigger cage, in that sense of they are under military occupation. The man in that moment is basically taking a bit of a stand in in protection of his daughter, saying, okay, I'm going to go into this cage, but she's not. Now, of course, she ends up sitting there and and seeing him in that sense but he's attempting to protect her but of course how much protection has he given her she's in the checkpoint she's in the west bank and she's witnessing his humiliation and she's being humiliated so it's almost a, a father's attempt to be the protector that all fathers want to be and yet palestinian fathers are robbed of in so many ways, with their with their children, and for me, the timepiece, his watch, actually is very symbolic of of a number of things. First of all, yes, his inheritance, very representative. He inherited this watch from his father, the same way Palestinians have inherited their lands from their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their grandfathers and so forth. And the soldiers tell him to remove the watch, and so in some ways, it's reflective and symbolic of our inheritance being taken from us, but also the idea of these checkpoints being about lost time, wasted time, Mm. stolen time. Uh, They don't just humiliate, they don't just exhaust. They actually rob Palestinians of the most valuable commodity that everybody has in the world. The most valuable commodity every human has is time. And Palestinians are just robbed of their time day in and day out at these checkpoints so it was very symbolic in that sense the watch and him saying not her are not connected it just happens to be the line that came Um, after
0: the watch. and and also in the film like in reality these checkpoints are not just only the site of repression and brutality but they're also sites of protest and defiance and we see that in the film as well when he gets frustrated and angry with the Israeli soldiers who are trying to humiliate him and not allowing him to take the refrigerator to his house. Farah, for decades we have been watching feature films and documentaries about Palestine and life under occupation. How would you describe the role played by Palestinian filmmakers in using this creative medium in informing and educating the world about Palestine. Celebrated Palestinian uh, filmmakers such as Elias Soleiman, Hani Abu Assad, and others have produced powerful films in universalizing the cause of Palestine. So, how do you see your role as an artist?
3: I see my role the same way I see any artist's role in any form of storytelling, and in some ways, you could say purpose driven storytelling that is used as this beautiful, powerful medium of human communication for any struggle. So not just the Palestinian struggle in that sense. For me, I am interested in telling stories that raise the global social conscience. That is the kind of filmmaker I want to be. Now, not all filmmakers want to do that. And that's okay. That's, you know, their prerogative. The kind of filmmaker I want to be is to raise the global social conscience. And I'm going to make films also that interest and intrigue me, that speak to me as a human being. And, of course, in the case of the present and my past films and potential future films, that speak to my identity as a Palestinian as well. So I don't know the motivation and incentives of other Palestinian filmmakers necessarily in their art, but of course we are all impacted and certainly the reality in Palestine is is going to manifest itself into artists' work and Palestinian artists' Mm -hmm. work. For me, I know what I want and that is, you know, I'm interested in, in doing, I'm interested in films that have depth and dynamism, that examine the human character, the human dynamics I'm not interested in labels. I'd rather examine the real life experiences and conditions Mm. that people go through that cause them to act or take action in the way they do and and so forth. And I think that the role in terms of the Palestinian struggle is huge. I I think film and art, and so the art of film is really the most powerful means of meaningful human communication the world has ever known actually. And it has this tremendous power to transcend borders, to overcome misconceptions and misperceptions, to tear down stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, yes, it is a tool in struggle. I mean, you can look at South Africa, for example, and uh, the times of apartheid South Africa of resistance theater. And that played a role in bringing down an apartheid system. There are university degrees, you know, that have these sort of entire modules dedicated. the power of art and resistance art so i think in some ways it hasn't been used enough to be honest i mean you talked about all these feature films and all these to be honest documentaries yes they are so powerful in their own way and certainly there are many documentaries uh when it comes to feature films and films that are fiction On Palestine. I think Palestinians, given that we have no infrastructure, no no government financial supports or grants to the extent of what other countries around the world have, and under occupation and so forth, have done a phenomenal job. At the same time, is it enough? Have we had so many? I don't think we've had as many as, as I would love us to have. And I think that there is a lot of potential. We have so many stories to tell, so many. Farah
0: Nabulsi is a Palestinian-British filmmaker whose credits include the recent short The Present, which was nominated for an Oscar in the Best Live Action Short category and won a BAFTA for Best Short Film. The Present is currently streaming on Netflix.
2: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Isabel Wilkerson all of those people that you listen to in Motown, they are all the children of the Great Migration. In fact, many of them might not have existed had there been no Great Migration. Diana Ross's parents, for example, her mother migrated from Alabama and her father from West Virginia. They met in Detroit, and here you have it. Um, The same with uh, the others in the Supremes. Aretha Franklin, her parents had come up from the South as well. The Jackson Five, the mother came from from, uh, Alabama, the father from Arkansas. They met up in the North, outside of Chicago settle in Gary, and you have all these things that would never have existed. All of those people were related to the Motown sound, which would not have existed had there been no great migration. Advancing the
3: conversation to abolish racism for over 70 years. 94.1 KPFA <laughs>
4: The nomination phase of KPFA's 2021 local station board elections is underway, and if you are a KPFA member, you can nominate candidates or become a candidate yourself. Go online at elections.pacifica.org to register either as a candidate or to nominate candidates. As a nominator, once approved, you will be able to log in and check the boxes next to the candidates you'd like to see on your local station board. Each potential candidate will need at least 15 nominations in order to be on the ballot this October. Members without internet access can leave a voicemail with their name, address, phone number, and the names of any candidates you'd like to nominate at 510-993-0320. For more information, visit elections.pacifica.org. It's 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org.